Section 13 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James, Brain and Personality, or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind, by William Hanna Thompson. Practical Applications, Part 2. Some would-be reformers or philanthropists appear to rely upon increase of knowledge or of information in the world as the cure for the world's evils. If men's minds were but enlightened, then everything would go well. The physiologist can only point out that such people, owing to their unfamiliarity with the constitution of this court, are addressing the wrong official. Reason undoubtedly does hold a high position at this court, which no one can justly disparage, but at best it is only an adviser of its sovereign. In the future, as this master improves in motives, this official will doubtless be promoted with an increase of authority. But as the world is still constituted, the influence of reason with the power which actually rules is at all times uncertain, because the effect depends on how the ruler is otherwise disposed. Should the reason venture to be importunate, it meets with the summary answer of the Roman Caesar. Sic volo, sic jubio, stat pro ratione voluntas. So I will, so I command, for a reason let the wish stand. Therefore gain the ear of the will first, and everything naturally, because physiologically, follows. The world is to improve, not by an increase of knowing people, desirable as that is, but by an increase among its inhabitants of people with benevolent wills. One phase of this subject deserves notice. Though the mind is so detachable from the real self, men nevertheless are constantly liable to confound it with the self. No mistake is greater and yet so common. Thus, when on occasion this retained lawyer of the will is directed to reason and to talk volubly on all righteousness, Men are deceived into believing that those who can talk so well must themselves be good. Both Seneca and Lord Bacon were among the meanest men of their times. The Romans' moral maxims are admired to this day, but he was the man who scandalized even the hardened cynics of Nero's Rome by rising in the Senate to eulogize Nero for ripping open the body of his mother to see the womb that bore him. Indeed, some men may be observed who, for the creditable showing virtuous declamation makes, proceed to display their own gifts of eloquence about goodness, much as they would lead out a horse to show his fine points. Another important aspect of the relation of the will to the mind is that just as with the creation of speech centers, the will likewise so alters the brain that in time the brain thinks only according to certain habitual ways. Some strong but elderly men of my acquaintance, whose reasoning powers no one could pronounce weak, seem no more able to change their opinions than they could learn readily Turkish or Chinese. As a rule, it is only in the third or fourth decennials of life that men's minds show any capacity to be converted on any important matter of opinion. The cause for this is not from any enfeeblement of judgment attendant on the advent of middle age. Instead, the judgment as a faculty should then be much stronger than in youth, as indeed it generally proves to be if left free to act. 
But as the years pass, the judgment is less and less free to act. Those will elements, likes and dislikes, in proportion to their intensity and duration, have steadily been fashioning the mind's physical instrument to work out only opinions to match, until to have new opinions they need to have literally new brains. The utmost that reason at any time can do is to persuade its master by adducing other motives, but an adult man who can be convinced against his will is well nigh a physiological impossibility. Why this is so, we now see clearly. It must not be supposed that men ever really hold opinions which to them appear unreasonable. Their wills take good care that their reasoning servant should always supply them with all the reasons which they want, and very well does this servant furnish its master with most cogent arguments to show the great reasonableness of his views, especially if his master's interests, that is, wishes, are strongly enlisted. Men's interests come to them from such sources as their parentage, birthplace, party, or sect, and the influences of these factors in life sway their reasoning as naturally and as irresistibly as the wind carries with it the dust of a road. This subservience of reason to the will is simply physiological, and therefore so unconscious that it is in no sense hypocritical or insincere, However, some may wonder at the intellectual feats in reasoning of those who have differed from them, not in mental faculty, but in their native environment. No one should wonder at or resent any reasoning as such, for this subordinate in man has to do as he is bidden by his master. In short, the world has yet to learn, once for all, that men are not to be justified nor condemned by such superficial things about them as their opinions. Set the will right first, and men's opinions will follow suit as soon as they have opportunities for knowing better, but with the will remaining perverted, not the opportunities for knowing of an eternity will avail. One of the best promises for the future of our race is the fact that men are always touched and the longest affected by the spectacle among their fellows of an individual life of consistent goodness, itself due to a will attribute. Influence is an exclusively human word, and in this world of changes by death, it is to be measured not alone by its extent, but by its duration. Judged thus, the influence of a simple-minded but loving mother may be perpetuated long after the eloquence of a score of famous orators has died away, died away as only mind-produced words can utterly die away into empty space. Passing from the general to the individual, no subject should so commend itself to the serious attention of all educators and instructors as those physiological facts which explain how the mind acts and how the will acts. Every teacher and parent ought to learn all that they can about this subject. The thinking brain, when left to itself, is the seat of the play of the afferent, responding mechanically to a thousand thousand afferent excitations pouring in upon it, in number as countless as the birds of the air which come down from the north, south, east, and west on a field in Gennesaret to catch away the seed of the sower. We are not responsible for the thoughts which enter our minds. No man ever was. What we are responsible for is the thoughts which we allow to stay there, because we have a kingly power within us which can command this mechanically thinking brain to do its thinking according to its behest, 
just as the brain in turn can command the spinal cord to stop acting reflexly to its afferent excitations and to act only in according to the brain's behests. The will, by its lawful, physiological, inhibitory power, can say to the thinking brain, these thoughts are good thoughts and valuable, therefore keep them. Those other thoughts are purposeless and hence unprofitable, therefore dismiss them at once, and a well-disciplined mind will obey. With what result? Here we come to the highest illustration of that great principle in nervous development, discipline, for it is the will, as the ranking official of all in man, who should now step forward to take the command. We cannot overestimate the priceless value of such direction when completely effective for the life of the individual in this world. A mind always broken in to the sway of the will and therefore thinking according to will and not according to reflex suggestion constitutes a purposive life. A man who habitually thinks according to purpose will then speak according to purpose and who will care to measure strength with such a man? Such a man or woman is the very embodiment of living power. But the important practical truth to apply here is that no power so grows in us by exercise or so weakens and atrophies by disuse as the will. Teach a child self-restraint and you are directly developing thereby his willpower. Soon he will himself learn the next lesson in will development and win Carlyle's great equipment for life, the ability to take trouble. But physiology now adds that the will then alters the brain by creating new places for the mind to work with. It is the will which creates the man. When the age of three score is reached, men can give the best opinions about life because most of its illusions have vanished. And well can they then comment on many a fellow traveler's course, though they may not care to refer to their own. Not a few of those whom they have known started out apparently well-equipped, so far as mental gifts and opportunities of education and of social position could enable them to go far and ascend high. But one by one they lagged and suffered themselves to be outstripped by others, whom perhaps few suspected at the start would reach the first rank before them, because they appeared so much inferior in mental powers to the men whom ultimately they wholly distanced. Will direction explains it all. What is the finest mental machine in this life without willpower? In a former age, men worshipped the body. Homer's heroes, with the partial exception of Ulysses, were worshipped for their bodily strength and beauty. The same is still true everywhere among the savage tribes, but we are living in an age in which mental gifts are estimated above all else. The great poet, the great artist, the great writer, the great orator are our Goliaths, while there is no end to the twaddle about genius. But the finest mental machine, without will, is little else than a machine worked by the afferent. But we are not here to be afferent. It is a responsibility for any being in the universe to have what man has, the will. That majestic endowment constitutes the high privilege granted to each man apparently to test how much the man will make of himself. It is clothed with powers which will enable him to obtain the greatest of all possessions, self-possession. 
self-possession implies the capacity for self-restraint, self-compulsion, and self-direction, and he who has these, if he live long enough, can have any other possession that he wants. The steady discipline of the will saves the mind also by obliging it not only to lessen the number of its thoughts, but to improve their quality. It is a weak, often a diseased mind, which thinks hurriedly. Let a man be enfeebled by a fever or by any other cause of exhaustion, and he has hard work to keep his mental machine from turning out thoughts which run to the end of the earth. A rapid flow of ideas, indeed, is the sign often of impending ruin, as in the approach of maniacal insanity, and rarely does that dreadful calamity occur except after long antecedent vicious mental habits, in which the mind has been allowed to roam with progressively less and less inhibition by the will. To a less but ever harmful degree, men are everywhere exposed to the depredations of that great thief of life, desultoriness. For desultoriness of thought leads to desultoriness of purpose, of plan, and of action, because each of these are soon displaced by some other thought or purpose, till the man wakes up at last to find his life wasted by his ever-roving, afferently working mind. Mental waste from too little will direction is the greatest waste of the world. Will direction calls for effort, but without it, the mind can easily saunter among attractive scenes of its own creation. This is one reason why our world is infested with so many dreamers, because it is so interesting to imagine an ideal society, an ideal state, or an ideal church with personally owned air castles included. All these are examples of mental processes which, when indulged in till they become mental habits, may end in true mental diseases. During the usually gradual onset of that fatal form of insanity which ends in general paralysis, the mind of the patient is characteristically occupied with exalted daydreams. I have thus recognized paupers in almshouses as affected with paresis, not only by the physical signs in their eye pupils, etc., but by eliciting from them confidential statements of what millionaires they were, and of what great things they were going to do. It is therefore one of the healthiest symptoms in a man to find him always able to face facts. This the mind will never do without the command of the will, because facing facts has to be a deliberate, often a disagreeable process, requiring much thought, and no mental machine can think long on any subject unless it has learned to think by will. Deep thought is but another term for prolonged thought. Without at first proposing anything of the sort, the physiologist now begins to find himself appearing in public in the conventional garb of an old sage. From the time of the prince who, centuries before Moses was born, wrote a book which has been found in an Egyptian tomb, in which he counsels his grandson how he could profit, as he himself had, by studying the books of the ancients, through a long line of Hebrew, Sanskrit, Persian, Chinese, Greek, and Roman worthies, mankind has been abundantly lectured about wisdom. Some people find these sages rather tiresome, because their talk is so monotonously alike, 
while its substance nearly everyone has known before. Therefore, the physiologist had better not venture to add himself to the number unless he can show cause by having something new to say. All that he can claim is that his calling has made clear certain facts and principles entering into the question, which his predecessors might have suspected, but without being as well informed about the grounds for them as he now is. Thus, as to wisdom. For practical purposes, it might be defined as a correct appreciation of the relative importance of things and acting accordingly. The physiologist divides this definition into two very distinct halves according to his recognition of the wide difference between the mind and the will. The first half, the appreciation of the relative importance of things, is done exclusively by the mind, and it does it so well and easily that anyone can try his hand at it. Everybody is wise by fits. The greatest fool of one's acquaintance has his sage moments, and, moreover, can deliver correct judgments about what others ought to do. But when it comes to acting accordingly, that falls to the will alone, and to keep on steadily doing what the mind recognizes as the wise thing, such a store of willpower is needed that but few are found have it. The ancient sages long bewailed this failure of the will to do the behest of the wise mind, but though they clearly recognized the fact, they did not know the physiological reason for it, which we are yet to allude to in our final chapter. As we have stated in chapter one, none of them knew what a nervous system was, nor what the brain was for. They did not know, therefore, any of the following facts which have so much bearing upon every speculation about man. First, that the conscious personality has a material organ to think with, which exists in two symmetrical halves. It is only one half of this organ, however, which can be used for speech, or for recognizing or knowing anything which is either seen or heard or touched, in the sense of the touch which is educated. All acquired human endowments, therefore, are acquired by a modification of the material comprising the speaking half of the brain. This speaking half of the brain did not originally have a single one of these great functions, not a single place in it for them, any more than its fellow hemisphere has to the end of life. They are all stamped, as it were, each in its respective place in the speaking hemisphere by a single creative agency. Had any one of the old wise men or philosophers been told this, how eagerly would he have asked who or what that creative agency was? We can well imagine that when told it was alone the purposive human will which first endowed that hemisphere with the great faculty of speech, and then with all the rest of these great powers, he would have exclaimed, if so, the will is the greatest fact in man. The physiologist has something new to say even on the oldest subjects of the moralist, who, like himself, for example, can speak with such emphasis on the great subject of habit. Long ago, sages said that our habits make us, but they said so after their observation of external life. The physiologist, using the same words, means that our habits make our brains inside of us, so that we think, talk, and act accordingly, and always accordingly, 
until the will steps in and takes the fashioning of the human brain in hand. But has the will here entirely displaced habit? Alas, no. The will is very partial in its work on the brain. As it began by discarding one of the two brains altogether, so by analogous neglect it also leaves every man with a great part of his mental apparatus only a purposeless, mechanically thinking thing, which is the mere creature of its habits. Then comes to the man an excellent teacher, experience, only, as Carlyle says of him, a teacher good and true, but he demands such dreadful wages. From experience, the man learns in time that many of his mental habits are very injurious, and hamper him like so many fetters. What can he do about it? It is the physiologist who can now tell him. Do not expect much from a New Year's Day's resolutions. Your will can make a new man of you, but only after its fashion when making anything new in the brain, by reiterating the same resolution stimulus every single day after New Year's for the whole year at least, just as you learn by it a new language. Brain cells and brain fibers cannot learn better ways from preachers, only your own untiring will can do anything with them. One other thing the will can do, which is of welcome import. To the young, as has been said, nature does nothing but give, from the old she does nothing but take away. If men did not become used to the progressive losses of old age by sheer compulsion, the so-called natural term of life would be for little else than sorrow. With old age, everything physical about us becomes progressively less usable and enjoyable, as if it were decaying by disease. But the will says to age, You must spare whatever brain there be where I remain in force. Do what you like with bone, muscle, or anything else about your victims, and you may likewise waste the brains of ordinary people till they become more childish than children, but the brain where I work shall always remain young. Close quote. This is all due to the remarkable physiological power of what is called interest, to resist either bodily exhaustion or decay. If a man expended the same amount of muscular exertion sawing wood, which he does climbing rocks or wading streams after trout, he would faint dead away. But interest is the soul of the will, and the undying ambition of many a statesman has kept his brain as strong after threescore and ten as it ever was before. The mind of Gladstone, when he was over eighty, was not like his body at that age, but remained still the same mind in all its powers which it was at sixty. This was not simply because Gladstone had an exceptional mind, for, if that were all, his mind would have been relatively older at eighty and after than it was at sixty, which it never was, but continued to the end more than twenty years younger than the rest of his frame. The importance of demonstrating this principle will excuse our delaying a moment in accounting for those interesting physiological objects, old misers. A miser is sustained throughout life by a special development of that incapacity for satisfaction which is one of the characteristics of that creature, man. Even man's body shares in this insatiability, for whereas the ass is contented with the same diet at his master's crib all his days, it would take more knowledge than most people have to state correctly where each article on a working man's table comes from, because every region and every climate of the globe generally contributes something to that dinner. 
but a power working on that will element which prevents man from knowing what is enough calls the miser to a lifelong mortification of the flesh, to an indifference to the scorn of his fellows at his conduct or at his raiment, and to the claims not only of his kindred, but even of his own body, for rich misers have been known to so hate their own lives for the sake of their master as to die of starvation, and all because that master's voice ever sounds in the miser's ear, to him that hath shall be given, and he shall have more abundantly. In other words, the miser's will is unceasingly stimulated by one of the most living and powerful of human motives, the desire to have. Wall Street is no place for dotards or simpletons, and that money market has known more than one octogenarian who was as well able to acquire from others when he was past eighty as he was half a century before. There is a bodily window through which the light streams as long as the brain is yet young, as is exemplified in a rich miser of my acquaintance. While the rest of him betrays that he is close upon ninety, the quick, searching glance of his eye reveals that every faculty of his mind is yet fully at the disposal of his will. On the other hand, let a man retire from business in his prime to lead thereafter a motiveless life, and age will change his brain as fast as it changes the color of his hair. No lesson for advancing years does physiology emphasize more strongly than that a man should never lose that great motive power of the will interest. End of section 13.